Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Raph. Oh, I mean, hello, Raphael. <laughs> hey, <laughs> Jeremiah. I want to. Do you have a mi- Do you have a middle name? Uh, yeah, I have two middle names. Okay. Ernest and Macola. Okay, you never use those in your persona. No, I should though. They're my dead grandfather's. So oh. long rest. I days. like that Ernest sounds like you're very reliable. Yeah. Well, it used to be associated with this terrible. I say terrible, but uh, maybe it's good for this today's topic. This uh, movie star who did all these like Ernest goes to jail, Ernest goes to camp, and he was this like kind of foolish, clumsy, like you know hillbilly uh, character, but he had a heart of gold. <laughs> yeah, just like you. Yeah, just like but me. it, it kind of yeah. also sounds like a car salesman, like a yeah, yeah. O- honest Jack or something like that. I like any name actually where the character like the character it's like a characteristic of a good person like Ernest is like if you met someone who was Ernest you know mm. there aren't very many names like that no I I would be kind of if it was a car salesman you would have second <laughs> that's depends right. on the but that's why the car salesman you he, he should be called like trustworthy or something like that like he would <laughs> overcompensate <laughs> first name is trust me yeah last name good deal <laughs> yeah. yeah like kim.com he, he changed his name actually to dot com his last name oh really legally changed it but is it yeah, a dot yeah. or dot it's d-o-t-c-o-m that's mm. his actual last name it's too bad he, he did that it's not pure i feel like it's only pure if he actually had the period the symbol yeah is that allowed in a name uh, didn't, Punctuation? Didn't, didn't Prince have that? He had that. He had a I'm symbol. not sure he had that in his passport. Mm-hmm. That would be funny if it's because of like some kind of API in the passport processing office. Yeah. <laughs> it's like special we, characters. A lot of emoji now. <laughs> <laughs> but we can't read special characters, or we're not Unicode compatible. I've yeah. yeah. In the future, we should be able to have Unicode names. I assume. Well, maybe certain languages you could consider. They have very. Uh, Oh, yeah. Large sets of characters that are very visual, so they're almost emoji. Yeah, it's true. I mean, certainly the Chinese character set is incredibly uh, complex. It's yeah. any pictorial kind of language. Yeah, it's really hard designing fonts in Asia, I think, because it's like, okay, I'll design a new font. Let's design 5,000 characters. Oh, yeah. No, I read an article about this one. Well, one thing I think I've mentioned on the podcast before is the printing press was invented in Korea, like movable type. Um, yeah. Not in Europe. As not a, Germany. Yeah, yeah. Basically, it was called a jikji, and it was it was uh, designed so that because the the Koreans used the Chinese character set, it was just like very labor intensive to reprint something um, with like wood block kind of printing, um, carving the whole page every day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it was just like really laborious. So they had the pain of movable type before uh, the Europeans. And then yeah, there's a lot of inventions that happen very early, and the world is just not ready for it. And then a thousand years later, it might find its place. Uh, yeah, except um, who is it? That, like, it's so early in the morning. We should mention to our users we're, <laughs> we're doing we're recording this morning. I've been at, like, up for seven hours or something. You mean you never went to bed? It's seven a.m. Exactly. seven thirty yeah. a.m. Uh, yeah. here in uh, East Coast. Uh, of North America. I think Hans Ulrich Obrist started this rumor that he only sleeps three hours a night. Uh, the famous curator. Yeah. But it's not true. He just said it in a few interviews, so everybody thinks. 
That's I don't know. I don't trust that guy. And also, I mean, he does have this very early morning club. The Did brutally I? early. Club. Oh yeah, brutally early club. And it's, yeah. and it is a real thing at the Serpentine. You can go to like a lecture at eight a.m., seven a.m. I can't remember how early it starts, yeah. but it's brutally early. Um, I like that in that it's like taking advantage of. Uh, there's no competition. <laughs> at that yeah, time. he he has a lot of clever ideas. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, why didn't anyone else do that? But that's why I think he's more. Of, he's more of a marketer than a uh, curator. I think like every time I'm, mm. he's like a. He seems just like um, like you mentioned uh, Saul Bass the other day, or like he seems like a. Ogilvy or like one of those kind of like advertising 1960s it's, a, it's, it's energy it's like a person with really good uh, <laughs> what do you call it the, um, something that catches on what's the uh, he reminds me of Seth he's like the Seth Godin of the art world <laughs> <laughs> for our listeners who don't yeah. know who Seth Godin is he wrote like tribes and all these like guru like marketing books but he's like the marketing guru but he's like the curator guru and there's something just like slightly off about that like it's like uh in canada our most famous designer is contemporary designers kareem rashid have you ever seen yeah kareem rashid wears like all white suits with white glasses (laughs) yeah yeah it's good at self-branding yeah contagious that's the word i was looking for some people just have contagious energy Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i kind of satirize that uh or maybe i have it and i just hate it (laughs) <laughs> you you try to be a grumpy person and you just can't help it <laughs> look into my eyes uh yeah, yeah but sometimes you do you meet those people now today that's kind it's funny of when you say those people but you're one of them <laughs> uh i don't know if oh, I'm, I'm those a- those self-branders <laughs> who just they can just walk up to a mic and talk about anything and it's just entertaining it is really funny though like once you realize you can get away with certain things uh like i was on a panel recently and because i'm i think it's more like owning your owning your weakness in a way that turns it into a strength i think that's what someone like that does but i was on a panel and i you know whenever i introduce myself as like famous new media artist i never know if people are going to cringe or laugh but like basically 99 percent of the time now they laugh out loud (laughs) but like if i really was a famous new media artist Uh, yeah, we're working on it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'd be like, yeah. "What? What's wrong? What do you get? What do you?" I don't yeah. know if you've ever seen that stand-up comedy by Andy Kaufman, where he tells he tells these really bad jokes, and like no one laughs, and then he like after the jokes, he like mumbles stuff or gets mad, and then everyone laughs, and he's like, "Why are you laughing? <laughs> Not why are you laughing at the joke? And you're laughing at me after the joke? I don't understand what you're laughing at." <laughs> uh, anyway, he's kind of. Uh, okay, that's a good. Is there a segue here? Because <laughs> today we are going to. Do we even need a segue? I don't know. Yeah. What's, what's the rule? That's yeah. the sound from that we decided on. Well, the segue. No, I, yeah. The only thing. It's it, it. Every episode. Um, Do we even like need Ten a minutes topic? after the episode, I'm like, oh, I should have said this. I should have said that. I forgot about this. Well, today. And the only thing I wanted to go back to. We talked about how voice computing doesn't make sense and how dictation of a text is really difficult compared to writing because you see the words in front of you Mm -hmm. and I thought it was so stupid that I'm doing a podcast every week and I'm saying voice doesn't work so Mm. I just wanted I I just wanted to rephrase but the interesting part for me is that um, you can often convince yourself of an opinion like just getting caught up in the energy of the argument and then later you're like that is not true at all that's not what I believe in that's not what I think but it sounded really convincing and it, it just makes me think how weird your mind is like 
I've convinced myself for many years like moving images can't be objects, so I can't make objects. Hmm. Because you just want this verbal rule. Yeah. And you are making objects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it, it it's funny how the brain works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're like trying to find a truth which will actually limit you. Well, it's actually a really good exercise to uh, argue against yourself um, in terms of like combating bias, like this playing devil's advocate or whatever. Yeah. It's a Do help. you ever play against your inner feminist? Mm. <laughs> no. I mean, I will try and see it from other people's point of view, for sure. I think that's healthy. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons... Uh, the one thing I like about this podcast is that we don't try and agree. I think early on we kind of did. Uh, and agreeing is not interesting. Uh, so it's not, it's, it's not entertaining. Yeah, that's right. Like the best panels, to go back to panels, are, oh, I hope this doesn't become about panels today, but the best, <laughs> the, best, <laughs> the best panels are always the ones where someone flips a table over kind of things. So they get so I angry. find panels very problematic. I find the, the whole process of debating problematic. I, I don't know whatever good came out of a debate. Well, you know, the debate that I thought we were going to talk about today was uh, uh, this debate of, around, I think, popular culture and kitsch. Um, yeah, that. Uh, yeah. Well, and specifically, well, I sent you an article during the week because you wanted we're to. Not de- we're not debating, right? We're just uh, adding thoughts on top of each other. Yeah, but you wanted to do, and you were like, "Let's do an episode on Jeff Koons, one of my least favorite artists, but also yeah. my favorite, like the artist I love to hate." Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I thought I thought Jeff Koons is interesting because it, intellectually, it's very interesting to me. It's it's so extreme and perverse. But I don't enjoy looking at the work. It's it's not if there's an exhibition that I'm dying to see it and I want to study the work and like look at it forever. Mm-hmm. But as a position of like, it's the most elitist economically, but it's the most inclusive thematically. So a lot. My father was in Spain in the countryside. He always camps out in the wild, and is on small farms. And everybody knew the big Jeff Koons puppy. So he thought he really brought art to the people. Oh really? So, even uh, even yeah. even if it's ridiculously expensive, and he's just he's a billionaire, and he's hanging out with billionaires, and he's flying flying private jets. Mm-hmm. Still, the everyday person is like, yeah, I like the giant flower puppy. Yeah, and then I sent <clears throat> I sent you this article uh, about the former president of the Pompidou uh, called Jeff Koons' gift to Paris because Jeff Koons recently gave a gift to Paris, but this is like classic Jeff Koons. <laughs> actually didn't give anything to Paris. He gave them the concept for an artwork. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's like, you can have it for free, but you have to pay to build it. Um, He's a businessman. Yeah. Sure. This, it's just like, uh, yeah. anyway, this former president called it a poisoned chalice. But the, <laughs> <laughs> the sculpture is of like these inflated, uh, his inflated kind of balloons, not the balloon dogs. Yeah, it's but not the best work. It's the uh. inflated tulips. Really kind of the dumbest Work he has <laughs> of a hand, and then it's like a hand holding this bouquet of like uh, balloon tulips. And I, you'd yeah. be surprised what the responses would be and how it would change that space. And it, 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 it it's interesting. To, uh, sorry, I cut you off again. No. Yeah, but uh, it's very interesting. He's so convinced of his mission. Yeah. I think he's always been that it, there's never the slightest criticism on himself or what he's doing or uh, on the point of art. He's, you know how a lot of artists will kind of put themselves down and say, well, you know, in the greater scope of things, it's not so important. And mm-hmm. what does art even matter for people? But he, he's like a 
the ultimate salesman who's just always saying like <laughs> art will bring people together and we'll make the world better and we'll make us understand ourselves and there's never the slightest doubt. But is that is that part part and parcel of his persona? Because certainly early well, on, well, I could ask you as, as an artist who has a persona. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, but early in his career, I, I'm pretty sure he's quoted as sort of saying, "I just give the people what they want," right? And so, in a way, yeah. But I I, I mean, my my gallery postmas, I think they showed him in a group show very early on, and she said he was always extremely convinced. He's like, "I'm bringing the new." Mm-hmm. And there was never any doubt of like, there's other people more important. There's other works that are more relevant. He's like, no, I am the new artist, mm-hmm. and and yeah. But he like so I, bef- to prepare for this episode, I like pulled out my art and theory book. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, like non-artists don't know about this, but any artist listeners know about this. It's this like huge book with a red you know red square on the front or red rectangle it's the no fun book <laughs> it's like hardly any pictures right yeah there's zero pictures of course uh and but it's all of the like seminal essays now mine is art and theory 1900 to 2000 but now they have one that goes to 2010 so that kind of ages me because i was in school at that time but i pulled out the the book because i remembered oh yeah you know the, there's a seminal essay on this topic called the avant-garde and kitsch that clement greenberg wrote now like and clement greenberg of course like famous uh art critic of abstract expressionism more like a he was like the agent or car dealer of abstract expressionism yeah he, he he's like the the grumpy intellectual who, who pushed rothko and pollock and, and mm-hmm. told the world that this is very important yeah yeah, yeah. He he pushed he pushed a, yeah, he pushed that. He yeah, he also pushed yeah, he he pushed Helen Frankenthaler too. He he pushed like a lot of people uh until the end of modernism. But basically, he's the godfather of modernism. <laughs> but it it is it, very much a a critic who had a a very strong opinion in one direction and a truth. Mhm. Yeah. And this essay is about um you know at the turn of the century, this sort of struggle in the lot, not this century, the last century, uh, struggle in the art world because most art um, had sort of existed and was made from, was representational, but the things, the symbols that were represented were never new. It was like, okay, yeah, like uh, let's throw a Jesus in here, a cross, like a mother, a sheep, a, a virgin you know, we'll put some clouds in the heavens, right? Like it was just a, all these kind of like core components, what comprised art well, was. Not only, yeah, not only that, there were very strict formulas saying, well, you, a good work of art should show how man is very small compared to nature, mm-hmm. but should also show something of classic architecture and it should show the seasons. And the same way a haiku has rules, Yeah, there were rules for a good painting. And uh, uh, I'm not sure you were referencing that. No, no, yeah, it's the th- same there's thing. There's been different moments in time where taste has been very defined, where we're like, this is what a good artwork looks like. And that's exactly the time when the avant-garde should flip that. Um, yeah, he makes that argument as well, right? So the avant-garde exists to challenge those rules. But, like, you know, the avant-garde, who is the avant-garde for, right? It's for the the cultured, because to understand what the avant-garde the is insiders. for. Yeah, the insiders. It's like... The influencers. And only the... The bloggers. Yeah, and you can't... It's hard to reject the bourgeoisie if you're doing this, because they're the ones with the time to, like, get to know. You know, they're the, the rich people have time to read and understand and be critical and talk about it in salons, etc., at the same time, like you know, at the turn of the century, the industrial revolution had led to like 
this additional capacity for leisure time among the normal people, right? Like prior to a certain era, like the proletariat or regular people on the street, uh, they were pretty much working all day long until the sun went down, right? Like, uh, you know, that you work on a farm, it's pretty much work until the sun goes down. Those were the pre-anxiety days? Yeah, but there's, you know, the argument is there's no need for culture uh, <laughs> in that time because <laughs> well, all there, you know there, is work. Th- yeah, and, and church. That's where they would see culture. Yeah, yeah, and so like. But there was music and plays, and I think I think a big part of this idea that they didn't have culture was that they were not so good at preserving culture because that I think they were doing things that, like like a, a historian told me, we know very little about advertising in the Middle Ages because it was all kept on media that disappeared. Yeah, and the the stuff that rich people kept, that's what we think visual history is. But there's just a lot of stuff that happened that wasn't preserved. But there was a rich visual culture of uh, advertising and leaflets and entertaining little books with pictures. And well, that's exactly what this, like, you know, what Clement Greenberg you know, argues. And this is in 1938, by the way. And so, so he argues that, like, yeah, there's this other culture and no one's talking about it. And it's in advertising. It's in Hollywood. It's in tap dancing, he says, and all this stuff. And it's like... And we have to talk about this. It's a truly American culture also (laughs) at that time because art was always following Europe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he he refers to this as kitsch. uh, And for those that don't know, I mean, I feel like kitsch is now like popular a popular word. If you Google kitsch, though, it's funny. Like, it's not there's the definition's not the top result. It's an urban dictionary (laughs) (laughs) item that's the top result. But according to dictionary.com, kitsch is pieces of art or other objects that appeal to popular or uncultivated taste, as in being garish or over-sentimental. But I think it's just positioning that in relationship to essay, he also sort of positions kitsch as like something just for, you know, for the, the poor, uncultured kind of masses to consume, right? And so it has this bad, uh, this, this, there's this taste kind of, well, yeah. we can jump out of the essay now and just talk about Coons now in relationship with yeah, Kitsch. Yeah, but there's 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 a, a function of art that artists don't realize when they're making it, or they realize later. But mm-hmm. that there's this functioning of art as the status object, and the more difficult it is to the big audience, the more differentiating it is for the, the cultured people to say, "I there's a secret language that I can read that other people." Yeah, uh, you you think that this is every so many years they have to re- update this because people will start to like the previous like maybe now people will understand conceptual art and then they have to find the new weird thing yeah no and I thought but they have to it. keep yeah. finding the weird thing to stay ahead of uh, what do you call the people yeah yeah well that's the thing like <laughs> is there a derogatory word for it well yeah. in art writing it's the pro you know or in mark in proletariat, proletariat yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it, 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 it that function of art and it's not even a, a, it's it's the same in music where people as soon as something becomes mainstream then you have to find the new thing well I think it's funny how in music it actually literally became about art like Kanye West like adopting high fashion like wearing well, that's kind of like Marjella like art is a fashion trend yeah, it, yeah but then and then but then like literally performing in galleries and stuff and it's like for me that's total kitsch because they're recreating quite often. Uh, art culture from the 1960s, right? Yeah. Like, they're like mm-hmm. Kenny West is like just discovered. Well, but that, that statement for me is kitsch. It kind of that's exactly what I'm alluding to. Like, you 
knew about that before, mm-hmm. so you want to be recognized for that, so you want to condemn, as soon as more people like it, you want to condemn it saying, hey, this happened before, I was in on it, you guys weren't, so I'm going to move on to the next thing. But that's what one of the, ma- like, one of the I think, topics I think that is underlying our entire podcast in general is really like, you know, um, is this conversation in regards to popularity versus like ostentatiousness or austerity, right? Um, and so, you know, Coons, I think, is a good kind of person to talk about in relationship with this, right? Because he's creating these works that, like, you know, appeal to your senses and, you, you know, don't make you think. Like, we, you know, his, uh, we were talking about the Whitney show, the retrospective, yeah, the Whitney, in which there's, like, the, the, the culminating piece of his career. He had children and they play with Play-Doh and he created, like, you know, 10, we talked about the last podcast, a 10-foot pile of Play-Doh, right? It can mean yeah. nothing except it's Play-Doh. <laughs> you yeah, know, like, and it's it's the artist material, it's the blank canvas, and it, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, Clement Greenberg you know, argues that art about itself is the only kind of escape. In, in, a, in a way, an escape from kitsch, but, like, that's what abstract expressionists did, right? So they... You could argue that Kunz is maybe even <laughs> abstract expressionist in a way, yeah. but he's making art about itself. Yeah, but, but what's interesting to me is there's been different stages of applying kitsch in, in, in sort of getting irony into art because first it was how can we depict nature mm. as good as possible that's good then the photo camera comes along it's like okay well I guess the photo camera can do that quicker but then how can we give a very the depths of my soul onto the canvas like if, if you argue that something like Monet or Rothko is free mm-hmm. of irony yeah. it's just pure beauty but then I think with Dada, kitsch kind of arrives, just like taking newspaper clippings and advertisement okay. slogans. And and I think pop art in the beginning was called Neo-Dada, like the first works yeah. of Roy Lichtenstein that were called Neo-Dada. So it wasn't such a new idea in the mm-hmm. 60s. And then Kunz comes along in the 80s and brings kitsch. So I don't even think that... No, 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 you're kitsch, right. Yeah. Kitsch is what he brought to the table. But what he brought to the table is this industrial perfection I think mm-hmm. as far as I know and that's especially later in his career like first he he brings in kitsch and he brings in mainstream culture into the gallery which a lot of people did but he does it a little bit sharper but then this this idea of the, uh, the Warhol's factory but Warhol's factory was very messy filled with junkies and, mm-hmm. and it's like a a radical uh, space but the, after that it's just like it's, it's almost like Intel it's like a big perfect factory and everything's dust free and and I'm, I'm curious whether he was one of the first people to do that but one of the other topics we wanted to discuss today kind of or was suggested by a listener was outsourcing and it, it yeah. and really yeah. actually he is one of the first people to uh, start to work with a fabricator or fabrication company uh, and I knew- yeah, I, I think again there were many people before who would, uh, for example, Maholi Nudge would work with the idea of, of data paintings that he would describe a painting over the phone, yeah, and someone on the other side of the world would execute the work, all right, because the painting is information and can be rendered at any scale. So there's been, but that was like three little works, maybe fifteen centimeters, and that's very different from someone saying. I'm going to make a puppy dog the size of a building out of flowers. Well, specifically, like, I remember reading about Kunz's like pursuit for this impossible um, reflective texture, like this chrome chromium kind of uh, as slick surface, as possible. like yeah. which we now know from his balloon dog series. But it was originally for 
the egg series. I can't, I can't remember what the name of that work is. The where cracked it's the, egg. The cracked egg. Is that what it's called? Cracked egg? <laughs> anyway. I don't know his titles. If his titles are just that straightforward. Poison ca- uh, chalice. <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway, like the cracked egg, uh, yeah, that surface that we're now familiar with, that mirror-like colored surface was impossible. He went to a bunch of different fabricators. They couldn't... Especially colored... Steel, that's very difficult. Yeah, and it, yeah, so they couldn't produce this finish that he desperately wanted, um, which, which, yeah, reminds me also of Anish Kapoor's Bean in Chicago, the most photographed artwork in the world. But anyway, so Kunz couldn't get this, and this was in the 80s, late 80s, and early 90s. But then he meets a he meets a fabricator in upstate New York or New Jersey, I can't remember quite. I should have done my research on this. Uh, and they're like, we can't do this, but we could work, we'd be willing to work with you on this. And eventually they figure something out right in an early version of it um and actually he bought that factory uh as far as yeah i've heard him another friend of mine has a studio in greenpoint and there was a a stonemason or something near him and and coons came to visit and he liked the quality and he's like okay i want to he didn't want to just order a bunch of sculptures he's like no i need volume so (laughs) i'm going to buy you guys up yeah yeah so So it's it's there's a lot of themes that come back from startup world where Facebook or Amazon reminds me of Apple actually you know it's like (laughs) we we want to have Gorilla Glass on our phones so we're going to like buy the Corning Glassware company actually well that gets more complicated because I keep hearing about how they actually buy phones from Foxconn Mm, right like it's funny that Foxconn is still not doesn't belong to Apple right yeah and their screens are from Samsung yeah Yeah, yeah, that's true so I mean that and maybe that's the what we're getting at with the outsourcing is there's the original idea we keep thinking that that was the original idea but when you go back in art history if you look at Egyptians it was a workshop and there was a a person sort of art directing everybody Mm -hmm. so the idea of an idea person and an uh, an artisanal crew Mm -hmm. But that it's was not a, very new. If you go back to the Egyptians, that's, that's true. quite a while and ago. And then if you fast forward, though, to like, I don't know, Florence, Italy, it would have been like an apprenticeship program where... Uh, yeah. So the, the, the idea of, of art made by one person controlling the material and, and, and mark making, hand done and uh, everything at once and it happening in front of the eyes of the art, all that, mm-hmm. that's just a way of making art. That is not... For a lot of people, that's what they think art it absolutely is. Yeah. And for a lot of people, it's weird when an artist works with laborers. But um, throughout art history, there's been... I think it's a constant wave of like very small production and big production. Yeah. Well, the reason one of our listeners sent in this uh, topic was because in new media art, uh, or art, art with code, computer art, whatever you want to call it, um, a lo- either there's a weird kind of macho tension around did you code that <laughs> mm-hmm. like did you do your own program yeah let me see your knuckles yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and there's it, it, seemingly like the idea of having yeah, someone I else, always get that question yeah you do I was wondering what you might think about that well I think with any method there are pros and cons Mm-hmm. It, it just it, it's very boring it, it would be much more interesting to say like no you must code everything yourself everything must be open source and you have these ideas and, but those truths sometimes are not true mm-hmm. it, so for me I started with animation and I played around with code and I just hit a wall like I just wasn't so interested in figuring it out mm-hmm. and I met Rainier he was the boyfriend of a girl in my class and I was like, oh, I have this problem, and it was taking me three weeks, and I couldn't figure it out. <laughs> and it took him like two minutes. 
And for him, it was fun because he could work on something that was a, a concise visual problem. So yeah. a lot of programming is big systems. And when you do artworks, especially my kind of artworks, it's it's just one little thing that you finish and it's done. Mm-hmm. There's no... Uh, so for a programmer, that's very refreshing to work on. Instead, if you do a, a multiplayer game and there's like... Right. You have to f- fix the networking and the gameplay and the communication. Instead, with me, it's... a a little research into one topic so it's beneficial for both of us Mm -hmm. that's what I'm saying yeah your artwork seems uniquely suited for it though too in that regard right like these kind of single gesture things I will say but I've also worked with sound people sometimes like I'll I'll, I'll try to find a sound and I can't find it and then a friend has a recording studio and we'll work together on the sound Mm. and then people can argue well I'm more in favor of art made by one person and then to them that's not interesting if it's made with a team well for me it's important to make and to use the code, like to write my own code, because I'm part of, I consider the process part of the performance. So, But the, that's also a budget thing. Like you, No, because I've had other people make stuff for me before. But, but imagine you, I'm, I'm, when there's Rainey. more resources yeah. and you have a studio of five people, yeah. five coders, and they're all making mistakes. And you walk in and you're like, that's an interesting mistake. Mm. That, it, that's too straightforward. You guys, why don't you work? To, basically yeah. how you're working at FreshBooks. That's true. That. And you're kind of like having different coders competing with each other. Yeah. And, and, and wow me. And you just walk in and you say, wow me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that I have this weird... So underlying... That sounds beautiful in a way, <laughs> but also terrifying. Like I wouldn't want to meet me in that situation. Like, wow me, people. Wow me. <laughs> that just seems like a, a terrible version of myself. Good morning. <laughs> I've come to be shocked. <laughs> That's how I walk into FreshBooks. No, but yeah. I think the thing that worries me in that context Do you is, walk around on a Segway? <laughs> <laughs> there are people that ride skateboards and scooters. You, and, and you should have a Segway and like two loudspeakers that say, wow me. Around the office. <laughs> then I'd definitely be like a Seth Godin. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but I think the thing that worries me in that context is we've all met that o- the, the older artist, and I don't want to stereotype this in an ageist way, but we've met the older artist that tries to work with a new technology or something, but doesn't really understand it in, in terms of mm-hmm. it, what it means, right? Like, so technology is not just, uh, it's not just a chrome finish, it also has meaning, right? So that like the actual technology if you believe that there's any meaning well i have to that's why we started this whole conversation yeah. with the avant-garde <laughs> but, uh, yeah if i believe in, in meaning i always talk about technology being a cultural stack like there's because it also delivers culture right like a laptop is not just a laptop it's all the media that came before it sandwiched between glass and metal and the internet so it's like in in software they talk about a software stack which is like the front end you know the you know the the connections between the front end and the back end the database the server there's a whole stack of technologies and each of those technologies mean something but in art each of those technology also has technologies as like kind of cultural meaning so i i'm very much of the bow, the bauhaus believed that like you know in design in design that designers needed to know about wood and ceramics and metal uh, in order to be a good to design a couch you need to know how wood works uh, and the same thing is true in architecture schools and I think in art schools too knowing your material is like um, at least knowing it like we were having this debate at FreshBooks this week because yeah. the designers don't want to have to learn to code anymore 
Uh, or maybe it's not that they don't want to have to, but it's part of what I've always had a requirement, like you must code, and they always struggle with that because not everyone's a great coder. Um, but my point Yeah, it's is, a completely different talent. Yeah, but it's like it's very interesting to see the designers who can code versus the ones that can't and how they yeah. behave. Yeah, well, well the, the, I think you can argue both ways, and both ways are true. So yeah. the more you know about the material, the more you'll take risks and stretch it out and do surprising things. Yeah. At the same time, I've spoken to Rainier a few times, and he said, because I don't code, I'll ask him weird stuff that you would never think of as a coder because you would think it's impossible. <laughs> right, 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 right. So it's almost like a child walking into a, a, an artist studio and saying, oh, why don't you paint this? Yeah. And the painter has, has all this baggage of art history and knowing what you're supposed to do. And, that pers- and a child ma- might walk in and say like, why don't you paint Super Mario holding a fidget spinner? <laughs> and, you know, so there's something similar to code, like when you're so deep into technology, <laughs> if, if you look at all the artists who are very good at coding, a certain type of art comes out of that. Yeah. And that might not be a coincidence. So because they're all coding, they're like, make code referencing IRC channels or Slack, and then they'll make code referencing Raspberry Pis, and it, 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 you mean that they'll make artwork? Yeah, they'll make artworks that refer to a culture that's elite only to them. Kind of yeah, 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 and and or the, visually they will come up with certain solutions. Like there's certain ways of making an image move, or there's certain ways of making generative art, and it mm-hmm. becomes a genre, and that might be from staring at code a lot. Mm-hmm. Like in, it, it does bring me back to that ad man kind of idea, which is like when I worked in advertising, every once in a while you'd meet a creative director, an art director, and they're like, it's about love, right? Like they just keep it at the highest, simple, <laughs> most simple level. And you'd be like, that's so uninteresting. And this comes back to Coons too, right? Like, we're, like where we seek more meaning from his work or someone else's work, the average person might be like, there's tons of meaning. We we talked about I can't yeah. last week. I think well, we talked about Kunz is is very good at talking to an, a, a novice audience. I don't want to say uneducated because they might be educated. Yeah, they're educated. Very something different something totally different. Yeah. Yeah, but like uh, he's very good at giving hints to people so they look more. Mm-hmm. And whenever he says that, it's kind of cringy to me. So he's like, well, there's the lobster and the lobster is fertility and there's the mustache and it's masculinity, but it's also female shape and, and he's this creepy salesman. <laughs> uh, I, I think the older I get, the, the more I'm interested in the artist and less in the artworks. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's like, I think it's not the older you get. Like, if you're into music, eventually you start to talk about the biography of the band. Like, you're yeah, like, oh, but I, Neil Young met I, this I don't, person. And yeah, I, I don't remember when I was younger thinking, like, oh, what, how was Mondrian living? I was just looking at those <laughs> those paintings. But now that I'm older, it's it's very interesting to know that he his lifestyle versus Donald Judd's way of living. It, it's a very different... So mm-hmm. it's a similar vocabulary, but Donald Judd did it on an entrepreneurial industrial scale and is very social with a lot of working together with a lot of people mm-hmm. and Mondrian is this sort of uh, monk living in a tiny space with very few things and a very focused just focused on one painting and Donald Judd is focused on a big enterprise and various locations producing various works on on demand and are you talking about system when you say Donald Judd now are you talking about Jeff Koons or no, no, I'm oh, talking Donald about Donald Judd. Okay, sorry, I thought you just... Yeah, who's like, also a little bit of a precursor to that sort of yeah, yeah. Fa- factory way of working and even using steel and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. those kind of Definitely. materials. So, of- so, but 
what I'm say- saying is so it's interesting to see uh, how the artist grew up and how the actual their living space and how that influences the work and so when I when I see Jeff Koons I'm really not that interested in seeing his works mm-hmm. uh, it's fine it's like okay the next one will be bigger I'm sure mm-hmm. but when you hear him speak I don't know any artist ever who has zero sense of humor about himself <laughs> like it's completely serious it, it, maybe in a way that Rothko is also 100% serious when you think of a serious artist but he's he's so he, he it seems like a joke. Like you think he's like, ah, I'm the salesman business artist. Yeah. But then you hear him speaking, and there's zero irony. So is that true even in this like? Because he did these nude portraits of uh, himself with yeah, women in the yeah, 1980s. Yeah. Well, with his wife. Well, that was a whole story where he uh, fell in love with an Italian porn star, and mm-hmm. he said, "I'm an art star, but I can also be a porn star." So I'm going to explore that. And there's no taboos. His work is all about which. I've I've seen many interviews with Jeff Koons. I'm very fascinated, and he always says everything is perfect. That is always so. He's like my work is about acceptance, and we have to accept the world as it is. So, when you look at that porn theme, it's like okay, life is perfect. We should not have any shame of our body. So, if I want to make a painting of an asshole or of an eyeball, mm-hmm. it's the same thing. But then no one in an interview ever asks, well, what do you think of famine and rape and well i mean also is that perfect too uh, yeah yeah i think they they could also ask uh, like he is i think that's probably the, the the critique that's volleyed at him most often and one of the reasons that i feel uncomfortable around his work is just like you know and the, i don't want to get you into this i don't want to trigger you in any way <laughs> but it's certainly like that he's working he's making work for um uh, you say for the people but quite often it's really uh sales to the wealthy um and that that work and that he is also of that class so he's a wealthy artist making work for other wealthy people and it, yeah and he, he he's like a chandelier like salesman him, basically the, the only thing I would say about that is that many artists are that but he is very open about it yeah he's it was like, interesting reading uh, so yeah. the topic like he, he he actually makes sculptures of like a, a huge diamond ring yeah so it's not even <laughs> the way Rothko would maybe be like, no, this is about the soul and the human condition. And this is just straight up like, no, this is like if a Ferrari, the Ferrari of artwork. It was interesting even just like rereading this Clement Greenberg essay because it remind, in, he's in 1930 talking about how <clears throat> artists hated that they were patrons to the bourgeoisie, right? Like, mm-hmm. And that like, ah, this like insufferable attachment to the bourgeoisie. And if only we could yeah. just like make art for ourselves. And then it's like, and so they reject it and then they're poor. And then they're like, ah, crawl back to the bourgeoisie. But I think that tension is alive in, in Jeff Koons' work, right? That, there's, some, there's something... Kind of finally uh, gave in the, and just gave them everything. Yeah, it, there's something very contradictory in an artist like Picasso who is a member of the Communist Party and very vocal about it, mm-hmm. but sells work to wealthy American industrialists for, for a lot of cash. Yeah. And uh, why it, there's, there's an artist like Toulouse-Lautrec who focused on posters, and he's like, well, these are reproducible, so a lot of people can enjoy them. They're not just for rich people. Yeah. So I think if you truly are tired of selling to rich people, you should make work that's more affordable and more accessible. That, and that's something about political art that often pisses me off that they say well we want to address economic inequality and social inequality but then they're always speaking in a manner that's very hard to access mm-hmm. even physically like 
But that's why I like a lot of people. The, the people you want to help yeah. are not are not hearing you. Well, you kind of dissed, uh, or we've dissed street art in the past, but in a way, street art's like was the original political yeah. art for the people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Like well, I think Toulouse Lautrec. Yeah. I think that's an early example of taking uh, uh, reproductive yeah. media and and bringing it to the people and and showing human suffering or the, the Bohemians and, but. Um, I think the worst street art, uh, though, is just advertising. Just to get back to kitsch a little bit. Yeah. So, then it's a, so the worst street art that you, I <laughs> They're see... They're like critiquing advertising and then they start a t-shirt brand. Yeah, like here in Toronto, there's this ridiculous um, graffiti artist called Love Robot. And he puts these like paints Love Robot on everything. The other day... Is was, it you? <laughs> no. Yeah, it's a secret identity or something. Um, yeah, is it but you? But it's literally everywhere and it's this hideous robot with like... And, but I was like pumping gas the other day and like he had inserted it into the gas pump like the part that's <laughs> like... like, I like, this is not even good. This is not even good street art. It's just replicating the ad, the mechanism of advertising's mass production, right? Yeah. Uh, and so the, ma- the mass production element of that I think you're saying like that would be great if there was actually something meaningful in that gesture uh, but quite often the street artist is simply reproducing it's just self-promotion yeah, yeah exactly well it gets even trickier when you you have the shepherd fairy who had the obey thing which was an anti-campaign it's, it's like you see the word obey everywhere and you don't even know what it represents mm-hmm. so that was the whole the, that was the joke. It's an ad campaign without a product. Yeah. But then he's like, well, I'm going to sell T-shirts of it. So <laughs> now it is an ad campaign yeah. for a T-shirt and a brand. Product. And And it's like free illegal advertising. So Well, I wonder if like, uh, do you think Murakami did this well? So Murakami, like famously, he had that uh, collaboration with Louis Vuitton for many years. And then also was working with kitsch symbols out of Japan. Like uh, Yeah. I, I, and that's maybe it goes back to our appropriation episode where... Uh, the appropriated party often feels shitty mm-hmm. when they get appropriated. And in the case of Murakami, I, I know from my friends in Japan that they're into anime culture and whoever's into anime culture kind of feels like he robbed that culture or mm. took advantage of it. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. You just but the same way probably there's a lot of people that Kuhn sampled that felt cheated afterwards. Yeah, I don't know. That was sampled by Coons, but I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, because Coons actually could do a lot more. He was sued a bunch of times. Uh, a lot so. of his images, like, um, at this... Well, I guess, it, did he have consent from Michael Jackson for the famous, like, Bubbles porcelain piece? Uh, no, but I think that's fair game. It's, it, unless he took a sculpture that someone else made and in lot Well, the, he made that ballerina recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was a whole thing around that where he, he thought... He... he he always samples little kitschy sculptures from gift shops. Mm-hmm. Like, and the, makes them hum- like the Hummel figurines. Yeah, but in this case, this was on the verge of folk art, but it was actually in a museum. Uh, it was kind of part of the canon, but in a small way. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't that he took an anonymous work. This was actually, I don't know the name, but I'm sure we can find it added in the show notes. Okay, we should take a little break at this point, and then I want to come back to the most controversial topic in my own family around this, uh, these, these kind of themes. But we have a, an advertisement to read. Yeah, we do. Um, so Chris, yeah. Chris Mills sent in an ad, and we're just gonna we're gonna read it raw. We never. I don't. Have you ever read that? You haven't read this before. You don't know. No. You know, here it goes. Okay. So to our listeners, if you haven't heard, the Nido file share needs all our help. 
Oh yeah, right. Uh, they're a brand new open access digital library specializing in PDFs, EXEs, ROMs, artist talks, readings, image dumps, videos, or anything really. Think UbuWeb with little to no context at all. Just amazing. Just amazing. The FileShare wants artistic and educational materials. So this thing's called the FileShare? Okay, I gotta get that right. The <laughs> FileShare wants artistic and educational materials. New or old, that are dear to people's minds and hearts. What you can find today in the Neato FileShare are catalogs of 1960s digital art, an image dump of ISIS drone footage, an unhealthy obsession with the work of Brad Trammell, and a lone Pokemon Gold ROM. What do you think, Jeremy? I think I need to. I think they need to branch out. They sure do. File—that's <laughs> yeah, too much branch from out. Files <laughs> from the roots of internet art cultures and new media are are highly encouraged, but all files are equal in the eyes of FileShare, especially files that you helped uh, that have helped you in your personal practice or research. Think no one cares about that zip file full of sound effects ripped from the early films of Stanley Kubrick? You have saved 17 subfolders down someplace? They do. Weirder the better. And on top of all that, they also have a file share refugee program. Mm. Priority will be given to those most <laughs> in need. Last copies and one of a kinds just ready for a backup. Not sure if that's Jeremy, <laughs> where is this library? I'm not going to say anything about the refugee program, but you can find file share at chriseugenemills.com forward slash library or by Googling Neato FileShare. All submissions are welcome. All right. Okay, guys. Neato FileShare. Google it. Yeah. Um, thank you, Chris Mills. Yeah, thanks for sending in an ad. Uh, and keep sending in your ads. I got a, another... Someone asked if they could... When the deadline is for submitting ads uh, before... You know, because say you have an event, like an opening. I, I would say within the next 40 years. <laughs> we're not sure if the podcast will be... <laughs> continue after that so but if you have a show coming up generally we record on the weekends uh sometimes today is a midweek recording so if you want to get it out just get it to us a week early if like say it's timely like you have a show opening i can't believe no one's ever advertised an opening it's funny we 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 had a few emails of people complaining that we're too elitist because we're like enjoying our cosmopolitan life and it's like well then send in some ads for your product (laughs) it'll help just we want to make you famous Um, let us shower you in gold. Um, so, so the thing I wanted to come back to just is like in my family, one of the biggest fights that I ever had, I, I'm from a family of five children. So seven, you know, uh, my father was a designer. My mom's always been very encouraging in the arts. I have a, a sister who's an artist, a brother who's an architect, a sister who's an art teacher and another brother who's a designer. I work as a designer and an artist. So one day I brought up, uh, my, my sister was doing jewelry design, and I was like, well, there's a difference uh, between craft and art. <laughs> so we, we, I had this, I, I refused to accept that what she was doing was art, uh, and that I thought it was kitsch or craft, and that it had little cultural value, <laughs> which is not great table conversation. In fact, it because of this argument. But that's it, it, it's funny. Whenever people say that, that's kind of a euphemism for saying I'm smarter than you. Yeah, and I think like I was a young because there's no way people when they say art and craft, there's definitely a hierarchical relationship. You're basically saying I'm more intellectually capable or provocative than 
someone who's working with their hands. Otherwise, you wouldn't bring that up. Yeah, no, I mean, so I was like just, you know, a young uh, artist still in art school. And so I was just like, it was provoking. But I was like, how can I take this like, uh, you know, twisted metal thing and call like think anything other than it's just ugly jewelry or something like I don't know if that's exactly what I said, because I like my sister's jewelry now. But uh, yeah, it was uh, it was it was controversial at the dinner table for sure, because my parents had this like much broader uh view because I think probably my father's a designer but they've always like bought art and they've also bought craft and they rarely distinguish between the two well that, I think that's the that's my main problem with art theory is that it's always any essay is is binary it's like kitsch versus high culture mm-hmm. or craft versus mm-hmm. uh, theory low versus or, high and, yeah and yeah, and, and in actuality it's not like when you're cooking it's like salt versus sweet it's like you need both in different proportions in each dish but if you make if you make pastry you still need a little bit of salt mm-hmm. and if you know yep so it it's not it's not like one thing is a thousand percent and the other one is minus thousand right yeah i think like it's funny though because we really do like these strict divisions like etsy you would never sell would you ever sell like contemporary artwork and i'm already using language to reposition art but would you ever sell that on Etsy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I I think about that myself when I, I think I mentioned it before, when I started the lenticulars, I was like, should I sell these in high volume for a low price mm-hmm. or low volume? Or but there are lots price? of people that do one-off or one-of-the-kind works on Etsy. They just happen to be well, knitted, uh, you know, ki- kitten hats or something. <laughs> yeah, there's just different subcultures. Yeah, There is the problem, there's a very problematic thing with high culture that what gets kept, and that's in the hands of rich people because they have the resources mm-hmm. to keep things. And then you get into this weird thing where if you look at the 60s, there was all kinds of cultural production around art and there were happenings and there was performance. But what you think of what is most archival are all the paintings from that time. So when you go to a museum, you see the most static version of the 60s. Right, of, right, right. You don't see the dynamic. Well, actually, because there was a lot, a lot of art created specifically at that time. I've talked about this like a zillion times on the podcast. Specifically, the uh, like Fluxus art and the happening itself was a political act against art for the bourgeoisie it was art for the people that was also academic art and people were engaged with it that way they're like challenged i the 60s were a really interesting time at least in my imagination because i wasn't there which is like again contradicts all of this but the the image i have of it is like that there were massive numbers of people engaged with not only culture but society you know, it's the Bernie Sanders kind of, the, everyone was a Bernie Sanders walking around be like, that's not fair. We should do it this way. Why are we wearing clothes? They're asking these like fundamental questions. Like, yeah. why don't we just have multiple partners? Why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? Um, you know, the latest... But what's, what's left over in a museum is a very static version yeah. of that. <laughs> yeah, you're left with a couple paintings and a document, yeah. like a photo of a Carolee Schneeman performance or something. But... Yeah. Um, I guess what I wanted to, uh, what I wanted to talk about was, uh, oh yeah, well I think like there, again coming back to this Clement Greenberg thing, there is this uh, weird, um, yeah, there's like a value judgment about kitsch, you know, that it's negative and a binary yeah, division, and a binary division, like and two categories, and he talks about like the artist being tempted to use kitsch symbols because it's it's currency with the proletariat, right? Like, the Yeah, I, I do notice that a lot in internet culture when you use pop culture references yeah, as more... put a pizza the, on the, it. 
<laughs> the memes are higher, yeah. Right? Like, yeah, exactly. So in a way, internet art was one of the, and I think we have to talk about this. Was, and, and I went through this too, and I'm still in it. I don't know whether consciously or unconsciously now, even in retrospect, if I was, I was often uh, using um, internet symbols like the dolphin, the palm tree, and I was thought I was using it ironically, but I was, you know, this is, and you talked about this a little bit earlier. There's the iron, whether irony was important or not, but I think quite often I was also using it as a as a way of of building popularity, and it's the cheapest path to popularity, right? To use. But there's a similar thing when people when art becomes academic and people will use symbols from art history to right uh, add intellectual weight to something. So it's like, oh. Yeah, look, I I put a little Rothko in there, and I put a little Kant and a little uh, Lacan, and so it, that's the same way of adding. It, it, that's not adding popular weight, but intellectual weight. Yeah, and I think that that's it's funny because on the flip side, you know, um, that this group of artists that we're a part of has been like so angry that the museum and art and the art writing world hasn't picked up on what they're doing. And yet, you know, if you talk to a writer or a museum curator, they might say, well, well, it's like what you're doing isn't really art. They've And there's this argument has existed uh, in parallel to most Yeah, people. so you're not allowed in the club. You're not allowed in the club, yeah, because <clears throat> you're using these cheap tricks, basically, is what they're saying. <laughs> and yeah. I don't, I haven't always bought that argument because I was using those tricks. I Like I said, I thought I was using them ironically, but maybe I was just using them to build popularity. And but for me, my work was always about, you know, fame was on the internet is ironic is an ironic gesture because it, the machine produces itself or reproduces itself, and I thought, yeah. but that's well, not the way I, it was I also being read. Think, I think it's also a generational thing where the the critics in place are a bit older than the artists, mm-hmm. and so they don't see all the layers of references that. When you reference a dolphin, you also see it through the eyes of art history, but also see it from the point of view of an uh, internet user. And for them, that's hard to see. Yeah, so. I remember Constant one day after he did something. It was at in Germany at Transmedia. The weekly Constant. Uh, yeah, but I remember he he just the, the, he said something that like stuck with me. Um, I came off stage and he, I walked up to him. You can't. He's a magnetic personality. You can't help it. Like if you see Constant, you walk toward him. <laughs> so, he's like, Jeremy. Do you think anyone will ever understand like those references or whatever? Um, will understand that like if you fucked up on stage on purpose or this or that? Like, will they get that? Like with that, or will they just think that you f- you're a total fuck up? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, Well, that's an interesting intersection. That people are not sure. Yeah, I think that's again with Coons, like the feeling of uncertainty. Um, that that well, that's that that to me is the only thing that's really fascinating about him. Where you're like, is he serious? <laughs> there's no way. No, he can't be serious. It's either the worst thing in the world or the best thing in the world. But, but it, it, there, there's something about him. Like I think our generation is the generation that's a bit disillusioned with capitalism. Even if you're an entrepreneur, you're still like, mm-hmm. yeah, this is really not working for everybody. But Kuhn seems to be this symbol of American optimism where he's like, yeah, I remember being a, a kid and we would go on vacation and the next vacation would be better. We would have a bigger tent mm-hmm. and then we'd go to a bigger mountain and see a more incredible waterfall. He literally right. uses these kind of I, words. And so this optimism of thinking, I think that's very different from our Well, generation. it's funny too because um, 
we mentioned this VR platform, the acute VR platform the other day, because his ballerina has been translated into VR. But the other artists that they also launched that, that, uh, that VR platform with, is it called acute? Oh, am I getting it wrong again? Damn it. Terrible branding. I think so. Anyway, is yeah. Marina Abramovic. Uh, and Marie- and Oliver Eliasson. Yeah, but I think just Marina Abramovic in relationship with Jeff Koons is worth like just noting that I think she's very similar. And she, but she's like uh, the, her kitsch object now is like the crystal and peace, and, like centeredness, <laughs> and I don't know the spirit that runs through us. She's like the Deepak Chopra. Yeah, of the yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what's funny is like people have I think in both Marina and Jeff Koons's. Jeff Koons has been almost totally rejected, I think, by the academic art world, and so has Marina Abramovic, at the same time that they've become most popular among normal people. Like, not normal people, but not people from the art elite. By the audience at large. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, you know, if you if I was to ask three people on the street or people at work, who do you know in the art world, they might mention those two artists, and I'd be like, ah, yeah. oh, like I'd put my finger in my mouth. <laughs> like, yeah, I you don't know. agree. I, I, yeah, I, I really like Jeff Koons just and, and and when you when you say the there's a similar thing I think with music with like the idea of college radio and the the, right. the kids who are discovering stuff first and then as soon as it gets popular they're like Bleh. you're like maybe 40 years ago then maybe 10 ago. years later the big audience <laughs> forgot about it and they're like oh Steely Dan is actually really cool <laughs> yeah, right right so uh, this this idea of, of hoping that academics will like your work is it's like college radio like who cares yeah is that what our good point is today? Who cares? Who cares? <laughs> Forget about <laughs> it. Forget about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, but but uh, I don't know if we need a good point to this. Many little points. Yeah. But uh, is is it? I always found that European net art was less ironic than American net art. Less less references to Michael Jackson or. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think it's like in America, it's just the internet became steeped in capitalism, and then like in and it was like the ultimate sort of culture factory. And so I think at least yeah. that's how American. Yeah, like references to Cheetos or yeah. to. Uh, and Brad Trammell, like, actually, that we mentioned loosely at the in the advertisement, he was doing a lot of stuff with that those kinds of symbols as like um, as a comment on you know with the jogging, on the comment yeah, on production and also in the age a, a of the com- internet. Yeah, and, and comments on the failure of things like Airbnb mm-hmm. and how it actually makes life worse. Yeah, so, I mean, I don't know where we want to talk about. I mean, there's one, <laughs> there is one point that I forgot to, but it, I forgot let, to let mention. Let me ask you something. It, which works of Coons did you enjoy looking at? That you saw them and you, like it did something pleasurable for your eyes? Hmm. You know what? It's like, it's really the cheap tricks. Like I like um, you mentioned the inflatable lobster or something like that. Like it looks mm-hmm. like it's it looks like it's made of plastic, but it's made of steel. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so it's like just his ability to simulate the floating basketballs. Yeah, like simulate floating, but they're not really. Yeah, <laughs> yeah this is like simulating um, or like this almost like illusion, like a cheap cheap magician's trick. Um, but it's not yeah. cheap. It's actually I- incredibly expensive and difficult to do. I- I gotta say the early it, it, that to me was always the interesting thing is like he presented the his first seminal show was these windows at the new museum mm. where he presented the new the show was called the new and he just had vacuum cleaners presented in oh, yeah. glass cases I didn't know that was at the new and, museum 
Yeah, and so that's interesting also with this name, the new, at the new museum. And it is kind of like taking the idea of kitsch and pop art to its ultimate conclusion. So mm-hmm. pop art was trying to remove the hand and presenting things in an, a sort of deadpan way. Yeah. And where, how can you go further than that? Like, well, I'm not even going to paint it. Because even Warhol's Brillo po- boxes were painted. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I'm not even going to paint them. I'm going to take Duchamp's idea of the ready-made and apply it to consumer goods. Yeah. And so to me... It always seemed like, how is that different from pop art? But I do think it's a very different feeling when you see those vacuum cleaners pristine in a box and then as time passes, they become antiquated, And but there's no hand of the artist and there's a lot going on. And it's on no there. longer new, yeah. Yeah, that that yeah. is, I forgot about that. That work that's really kind of, that is good. That's a good piece. Yeah. And there's this continuous theme. He, he always talks about uh, breathing and objects filling themselves with air so all his objects and the vacuum cleaners are the most astute symbol of of airflow yeah oh i didn't i don't know about that but uh (laughs) a little bit of hot air in that in that statement i the one last thing i wanted to talk about because this is the one thing i don't know if there's room for this in the podcast we have to wrap up soon i was like um i once read this i I feel like there's a lot more to talk about outsourcing but we could do another episode fully on outsourcing well even just in terms of taste which is another thing that i don't know maybe i shouldn't go down this road but like because you know what when, when you talk about kids you talk, talk about taste there's this book by david bachelor called chromophobia and he t- in it he talks about our like at the, the elite our elite culture or high design cultures allergy toward color and that like color has often been associated with tackiness or crassness um, yeah, I heard the same thing about my work. It's like, and someone from a museum looking at my lenticulars is like, I love the way you use these kitschy colors. And <laughs> to me, it's just fundamental research. So I use the most uh, the colors that are as far away from each other on the spectrum. It's almost a scientific research. Mm-hmm. And for her, it was like, oh, I like these kitschy colors. And I'm like, no, this is just research of the material. Yeah, I thought it would be interesting to discuss because like, if we were to strip away all the meaning and symbols like the base value for the eye is color and even in color you know like you can't escape this like polemic between or like this yeah. dichotomy between so the different colors have associations with different layers of strata of society yeah, exactly so it's like yeah. you're either us- you're using poor gutter colors and that those are bright colors or using high subtle colors like you know aristocratic yeah. color- colors like light beige the taupe. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. and david batcher talks about why why this he believes this is true he's a british uh he teaches british uh writer and, and academic but his point was and i think it's a funny one to consider that that um as we get like the bourgeoisie needs to reject its body in order like in order for it to feel okay but basically like to, f- to feel elevated like the yeah in exactly like the to be higher to be godly is to is to reject one's body and so if you look at because the body is full of all of these colors maybe you know like you've got your poo your pee yeah. your blood your guts yeah, and yeah. then like this is this is a slippery slope because you could argue every way well also it's I, like I, extremely I, like uh uh like uh, like bias towards white skin in this case too but like don't th- I don't want to go there well, completely if, but there's also yeah. like a certain elitism associated with that um, but like he says that this comes to life in the architectural digest 
where you look at kitchens and bathrooms of wealthy people and they're and the living rooms and they're these like white pristine spaces with no but it's trends no there's there's waves because even i think rich people can afford to change their home often mm-hmm. and, uh, a lot of people will just have the bathroom that was in the house when they rented it and they'll never change it but there's nothing tackier than a white bathroom with a ball of hair in the sink or something like that. you know like uh, <laughs> yeah. but but when you look at nature maybe this is a uh, and this is going to get very geopolitically prejudiced but the more southern or the more all the colonies in South America I think of nature being very colorful mm-hmm. and then these countries like England and the Netherlands that came to colonize them nature is very muted yeah and so maybe there's a color association there where bright colors are the colonies well and that's what you enslave and I mean you could argue so no many but ways. it's I, I think this is just worth making this point because museums like the North the North Sea color palette but like all of the Greek and Roman sculpture and a lot of what we've exhumed from previous cultures when you go to a museum it's all white but these were originally painted in bright colors mm-hmm. and like there's an argument that's an interesting point because it, as art ages it, the colors are muted mm-hmm. yeah yeah, and it but like because and it that's been associated like with a certain like whiteness or highness and anyway I don't want to make this completely political but it totally is uh, <laughs> and it's hard to remove that from this discussion I, and I, one thing I can say that's nice about Jeff Koons you know that you wouldn't expect because a lot of people would accuse him of being like kind of a misogynist or something um, because of probably because of that porn work early on, but other also because well, he of some, was just as nude as his his wife in there. So I don't yeah, know. for some I think because he's this white male ego or whatever. But like the thing that he does that maybe isn't is he does use a lot of color and like makes it seem like I guess he's using it in a kitsch way, but it but yeah. making it I don't know like I, I I think the color association is a economic association where. When I think of a Calvinist church, mm-hmm. which is the model for capitalism, capitalism came from Protestantism. Is, is that true? I think it is. And then I think of Catholic church being very colorful and elaborate and kitschy, mm-hmm. and the Calvinist church or the Protestant church being completely reduced. There's no depictions of Jesus. It's more uh, conceptual. Jesus is in your mind. It's not on the wall. Mm-hmm. And then you think of, of Catholic churches with lots of flowers and blood everywhere yeah. and bright colors so I think of that economic division of north and south but uh, I mean I guess and, and like Gerhard Richter is like the ultimate Protestant German yeah everything's gray every every color is muted but I want my good point today to be that that's a rejection of self that's all I'm saying like <clears throat> okay, okay that like that kitches the acceptance of self well, that's what Coons is always talking about. It's about the acceptance of self. Yeah, yeah. and yeah, and that um, the opposite, which would be the avant-garde, is the rejection of self. Yeah, that's my yeah. good point for today. <laughs> I think that's a great point. So we're kind of yeah. over time. Uh, do we have a a field recording? We do. Yeah, um, the field recording is from a person called. Do you know? Uh. I thought you no, you did. It's the j- Andy Gurr. Yeah. I kept you guys in suspense, and he <laughs> recorded. Uh, he's an artist from Argentina, and he was in New York, and he recorded some boys playing drums. I think in New York, often you'll see kids in the subway playing instruments for money, and in this case, they're playing plastic buckets, and they play the drums very well. So uh, we'll listen to that, and thank you, everybody. 
Thank you. Do you have anything? Yeah, Uh, just thank you. See you next week. Yes, uh, maybe. Hey, you know what we haven't asked in a while is for some reviews on iTunes. Does that sound, that sounds so antiquated. Does that ha- do we have? Yeah. Do we have that? I was just thinking, what's the kitchen okay, thing Jeremy, I can ask for? Okay, why don't you why don't you ask for people to review, and I'll ask for people not to review. And we'll see what. <laughs> I was just thinking, how could I be crassly commercial at the end of this podcast? It's, uh, all right. Okay, let's listen to some drums, and uh, thank you for listening. Yeah, thanks so much.